listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. In our last episode, we spoke with Virginia Delegate Danica Rome about the laws sweeping the nation targeting the gender-diverse community and how advocates and healthcare providers can protect our patients. The laws range from identification in schools, school curriculums, sports participation, bathroom usage, and of course, healthcare access. While laws and policies are impacting almost 2 million Americans, gender-diverse adolescents are feeling the brunt of the legislative persecution. The vast majority of the policies being introduced are directly affecting gender-diverse youth, and the timing of access to healthcare during puberty is critical. We know that gender-affirming care at this critical time improves outcomes and reduces anxiety and suicidal ideation, but what exactly are these laws trying to take away? Hi, my name is Shane Gerritsen. I'm a pharmacy student, and my pronouns are he, him. If you've been with us since the beginning of this series, we hope you have a pretty good understanding of what constitutes gender-affirming care and the many ways pharmacists can provide this kind of care, from effective medication counseling to providing hormone replacement therapy to advocating for inclusive electronic health records, just to name a few. But what does this look like for the growing number of adolescents who identify as gender-diverse? A study in Pittsburgh found that 1 in 10 teens identify as gender-diverse. According to other estimates, approximately 300,000 American youth self-identify. The U.S. Census only recently, in 2021, started including questions about gender identity and expression, so these numbers are likely a gross underestimation. We recently had the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Michelle Forcier, a professor of pediatrics and pediatrician who specializes in sexual health and providing gender-affirming care in Boston, Massachusetts. My name is Michelle Forcier. My pronouns are she, they. We're also joined by Jordan and Addie. My name is Jordan Smith. My pronouns are he, him. My name is Addie Gante. My pronouns are he, him. Dr. Forcier is going to help us answer these questions I posed and hopefully help us develop a better understanding of how to care for our gender diverse patients of all ages. I guess I'm I'm still a little bit naive about the trade-off in like timing of of puberty blocking into affirming therapy and what it was sort of a typical timeline looks like talking us through kind of yeah. that would be would be awesome. Yeah. So let me take you through tell me if this works. Let me take you through sort of an ideal situation where we see someone really young and then we sort of move with them through puberty together as a team. And then we can talk about the kids that unfortunately we don't see early in puberty and how puberty blockers can still be useful um, and and or an adjunct to say testosterone or estradiol. How's that sound? That, that, that sounds perfect. The ideal situation is we've got a family who understands that their kid is exploring gender. And again, a family doesn't have to say, my kid is trans. Some kids know they're trans. They're, I mean, they're very clear. Or they're like, I am a boy. Like, don't even call me trans. This is who I am. My gender is male. I am a boy. I'm not part of that community. So there's so many, again, different ways even kids can present, but a a family knows their kid is exploring gender in one way or the other. And they say, let's talk to someone who knows about gender. Now I tell pediatricians who want to refer, or I tell families that I talk to, the earlier we see your kids, the better. 
because we develop a relationship. We get to know that that kid as a human being. We get to know how they're moving through their gender journey, what they're thinking about at the start, as well as how they move through sort of pre-adolescence. Really important, huge growth formative years, right? The whole of childhood is about figuring out who I'm supposed to be. So they come in and see us. And again, I've seen kids as early as age four, we're like, we don't have anything to do medically. It's really just so your kid gets to know us and feel safe and comfortable. So when we need to make decisions, it's not a big deal because we have this relationship. You as a parent get to know us and develop trust. Like you understand that we are keeping up with the literature. We know what we're talking about and we don't have a vested interest in in where and how your kid develops as long as they are being authentic and their authentic self is being respected. That's our rule is to help them be heard. And then based on what they're telling us, as we carefully listen to them, these are some options for care that you and your parent can elect to choose. And so we'll see those kids ideally once or twice a year, just so they, again, know who we are. Parents ask more and more questions. As puberty approaches, we start to to talk more about, like, what is puberty going to look like? Like, you know, when does it come? What will be happening? How do we know it's arriving? What, you know, happens when it starts? Um, And so we can, again, sort of de-escalate some of that anxiety about, like, what's going to happen to me and my body? which is huge. Um, And if you look at, say, the the literature, the trans youth study, you know, we see kids that are, say, um, gender diverse and exploring early, disclosed and supported by families. They've been following a cohort of kids over time. And those kids who are supported by their parents and families look look very similar in depression and anxiety to their siblings and their peers. Now, if you know the trans literature, that is not the typical adult outcome or even adolescent outcome for gender diverse persons who have significantly higher depression, significantly higher anxiety, significantly higher suicidality. So the trans youth study by Olson is super important in terms of that early support, critical in terms of, again, healthy human development, healthy gender development. So and the other piece that's really important about this sort of early stuff is Puberty starting earlier and earlier. There's some new, um, you know, pieces of of uh, data out now that say, you know, the age of puberty continues to drop, um, and we know that breast development can start as early as seven or eight year olds, and that's considered normal and not pathologic. So if you're going to wait to talk to kids about puberty or wait to even think about blockers till you're 13, you're going to miss the bus probably at least um, at least 50, probably a larger percent of your patients because most persons with ovaries and uteruses are going to probably have already started way before them. So, um, we, you know, we start talking about like, what is puberty, what to look for. We talk, say a little bit about breastfeeding. That's something to look for in terms of the first stages for persons that have ovaries and estrogen. And we talk a little bit about, you know, um, sort of different erectile function, maybe some voice changes, again, increasing size um, and function of the testes and the penis. So there's some early changes that we can counsel parents and kids so that if those things start to change, they can come see us and continue to talk about care and maybe even access care. Now, you guys know the puberty blockers are expensive. You guys know, <laughs> I'm sure you know that because you've probably done all those prior authorizations where it makes you want to pull all your hair out. Parents are worried that they're not going to get the meds. Kids are worried that they're going to go through puberty. We're worried that, again, the system is going to sort of, again, create yet more um, problems for our, our trans and gender diverse patients. But 
puberty blockers, ideally, if we were to start from patients that identify and know they want their puberty blocked, uh, if we start at, say, at very early Tanner 2, say within the six months of Tanner 2 starting. What Dr. Forcier is referring to here is Tanner staging, also known as the SMR, or Sexual Maturity Rating, which is a classification system used by physicians to document secondary sex characteristics of children during puberty. We can pretty much predict that if there are pubertal developments, those will even regress. So we know that if we can start early, people will not necessarily have breasts or chest. They won't need top surgery. Um, we know that if we start early enough before other phenotypic changes, we may not see the bony or hip changes, skeletal changes, broad shoulders, hips. Again, things that testosterone and estrogen do to affect the skeleton permanently, things we can't do anything about later on. Um, things like male pattern hair, lower voice. Again, those are all changes that are really, really hard to counter and sort of change the direction of a masculinity or femininity later on after those sort of phenotypic changes from, from the effects of testosterone and estrogen. So ideally, you know, if we have a kid that's ready and a family that's ready and they start in that early six, first six months of puberty, um, there's a whole lot of other things that won't have happened to their body that are really, really hard to undo either medically or surgically or with other sort of laser, other therapies down the road. So when we talk with kids about that sort of starting of puberty blockers, you know, and again, whether it's at age eight or nine or whether it's at age 12, um, you know, we talk about, um, we go through a patient-centered consent-based process with both the child and the parent. And I think one of the approaches we've tried to take, which is a little different sometimes than sort of typical medicine, is if you use a developmental pathway to care for these kids, you're going to start with not the risks of the medication and free kids out. You're going to start with what will this medicine do for you? Because why take a medicine if you're not going to focus on what it's trying to achieve? So we start sort of with that strong leg forward. This is the things that the medicine will do. This is how it's effective super effective at stopping puberty, stops it in its tracks, boom. You know, there's that initial, and I tell kids, puberty blockers are kind of like this pretend hormone. We call it a, you know, a hormone analog. And it sort of fools this gland in the brain into thinking it doesn't need to send signals to the testes or the ovaries. So by sort of this constant sort of feedback to this gland and its receptors, Again, constant non-pulsatile, which is sort of a characteristic of those sort of how those glands work in puberty. It sort of fools the brain into thinking, oh, I'm back into pre-puberty. And there's no messages to send to the ovaries and testes. And so everything kind of just slows down and shuts down. And so by about three to four weeks, you've got a super, super, super effective back to pre-puberty sort of function of the the glands uh, in the brain, as well as the testes and ovaries. And really nothing shuts down puberty um, or stops periods or, or stops those secondary phenotypic changes like puberty blockers. We have less expensive options that we can substitute sometimes to help with certain things, but nothing nothing really stops the, those pubertal changes like the GnRH analogs. And so we talk about with parents, these medicines are a great option um, in a way, no matter how young your kid is, because they're completely reversible. Like your kid at eight, your kid at 10, your kid at 12 does not need to decide. Like this is my gender future. 
some kids may know. And they're like, yeah, I know what my gender future is. And, you know, no one's going to change my mind. And that's great. But other kids are less clear and less sure. And so those totally reversible puberty blockers allow them and their parents time to figure things out. It allows a kid to go, say, from age eight or nine to, say, 13 or 14, which is huge in terms of pediatric development, understanding of self, maturity, making decisions. You know, and I think that's one of the things that press doesn't really pick up on is, again, these puberty blockers actually really allow kids and families some really nice space of time and room, again, to process things in a thoughtful, intelligent manner with resources, support, and again, in a way that really hears what the child is trying to tell us uh, without making any lifelong permanent decision. Like, how beautiful is that? How many completely reversible medicines do we have? Uh, Dr. Forsey, not to steal this this uh, thunder here, because I think the path you're taking us on is absolutely perfect. Uh, but I, I think you echoed something right there that I think is worth repeating and, and that the guidelines put forth that, that non-intervention for transgender youth suffering from gender dysphoria is not neutral. Yes. You know, what, what we're doing here with uh, puberty blockers, with uh, with with an active therapy, it is is sort of the neutral option. This is this is allowing that child to make that decision. This is allowing the, right. the parents, the families, the providers to figure out in a time where we're not, you know, you know that we're not going down an irreversible path that doesn't need to be gone down. Wow. Um, you know, so so it, I hadn't thought about it that way necessarily until you sort of talked about it. But but yeah, the neutral option is is pausing is yeah. pausing therapy. So I I think that's really powerful and important to think about. I think it is too, and I think it goes to stories we hear in clinic where you know a parent will say. I'm not doing anything. They're going to have to make their own decision when they're 18. So I'm not going to, okay, care. And they're walking around thinking that's a neutral option. And I'm like, actually, that's actually number one, not a neutral option. You have made a decision. You've made a decision to reject an effective, safe therapy. And you're actually making a decision against medical advice. So you can, of course, as a parent, make that decision. Oh, there's your puppy. Oh yeah. They're <laughs> floating around in here. Huh? Um, you, of course, have the ability to to make that decision as a parent, but let me let me um, let me unfortunately burst that bubble <laughs> that makes you feel safe and not responsible. You are you are still responsible, and you are still part of that decision making process. And there's actually outcomes, and some of them are adverse outcomes that will happen from not making again that decision for that sort of safe, effective medicine that gives you and your kids some time again to figure things out. Um, and, you know, I say that not in a mean way, but it's yeah. in a true way. Like if you had asthma and you didn't give your kid albuterol, what would we say? Right. Or diabetes. And you said, oh, I'm not going to provide my kid with insulin. We'd look at them in horror and say, "You like, really? Like, like, tell me more about why, because we need to understand this. Your kid like needs something that could be very, very safe and helpful to them. So we talked about the benefits and the benefits are totally reversible stopping puberty. Again, it's not going to necessarily undo puberty for kids that have already gone through puberty, but it will stop. And sometimes just the stopping, like you're not continuing to develop breasts. You're not, your hips and body habitus are not changing. You're not getting hairier. 
um, you know, other things that, or you're not having your period, all these things that if you're, you are in the born, you know, if your body is in the wrong gender, those are painful, yucky, awful things for some kids. Now say for non-binary kids, right? That's a whole new topic. Some of those kids don't have that same like classic dysphoria. Like I hate my body or, you know, I'm suicidal when I get my periods, but it's still really important for them because even though they don't have, again, what the DSM would say, classic gender dysphoria, that pause again gives them time to determine in that sort of non-binary space where we sort of reject, you have to be male or you have to be female, which again is completely socially dictated and again, very, very arbitrary. Like, where do you need to be without your body making um, permanent changes that again, you can't necessarily undo later on. So there's that benefit of that sort of reversible pause, giving everybody time and room to make decisions. And we see people that even when they just come to clinic, depression, anxiety, suicidality, like there's, you know, there's some known effects of a kid gets into care and there's like this relief factor where they start to feel better. And sometimes even if parents don't make decisions, that visit, they come back and say, you know, it seemed like things were so much better for, for Sam or Joe, you know, just having had this conversation. Um, when we talk about the, the problems or say the, the risks for puberty blockers, again, part of consent, right? We say they're expensive. <laughs> That's the biggest problem is that they're expensive. They go, you have to go through like jump through hoops of fire um, to get them sometimes in prior authorization. And then like what's covered, when is it covered? All the things that insurance companies do to try to delay providing medicine because that's their job is to invest money, not to necessarily provide medicine, which takes the personal sting out of why is this happening to us? Why, why is the insurance company not like being helpful? Because that's not really their job in a way. Um, that's another pharmacy segment you can do. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. If you ever want to just come on and talk about the, you know, uh, how, how all that, I, I'd love to, uh, but so, yeah, another, another segment. <laughs> yeah. Just, it takes a personal sting of like, you don't want to give medicine to my patient. No, it's just sort of not how insurance works. Um, they don't want to so, give it to anybody. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's not that's, you. <laughs> their job. Yeah. Their job is just to, to make money. And then we talk with parents like, you know, what do we know? Well, they're reversible. Again, we keep saying that because it's so important. There are questions about how do, how do blockers affect bone health and how do blockers say affect neurocognitive development? And those are your big questions that parents ask. And what we say, number one, is that again, We've had almost 50 years of puberty blockers being used in precocious puberty kids for far longer periods of time. And none of these questions have been burning, you know, burning, horrifying, experimental, concerning questions for that population of kids, which again is really interesting. And I think demonstrates some of the politicization of gender care. Like you mentioned, your kid's not going to use puberty blockers probably forever. So even if they use puberty blockers for part of the longest period of time, for many kids using puberty blockers, they want to start puberty when their peers do, right? So that may be 13 or 14 years old. So at that bone growth, bone density accruing period, we were going to actually add those gender hormones that are so important that are part of building bone. So it's not really fair to extrapolate. Like we don't know, again, what puberty blockers will do to bone, but we do know from the literature in Depo-Provera that when you block, say, estrogen and you block bone density accrual and you stop those medicines, people catch back up. 
right? And we know we learned a lesson from the black box warning with Depo, another historical lesson about how to do or not do things in pharmacy, where everybody reactively took all their adolescent patients off Depo. We had lots of pregnancies and abortions after, and people then realized, oh, Depo is not the evil drug. And again, in many settings, it's a perfect, safe, and absolutely fine option. Again, not having these horrible bone mineral density effects. And I think there's a similarity again to bone mineral density and, and as well as with the GNH and analogs, especially if we give them back at the right doses and people have actually adequate levels, they're going to build their bones. If they have adult normal testosterone and estrogen levels. Now, if you look at the literature about bone mineral density, some of the studies are looking at trans adults. And if you look at the doses one of my favorite things to do is look at these studies and say like, how, you know, did you really actually extrapolate in a correct manner? And if you're looking at a trans woman, say in their adult years, and you're giving them two milligrams of estradiol, do you think their levels, I mean, you guys are pharmacists, you know, their levels aren't going to be great. So you're putting them in sort of, again, a perimenopausal situation where it's unfair to say, oh, with estrogen, you have bone health issues. And it's no, because we're underdosing them. And they're actually not getting the estrogen they need to build bone health. So if we do blockers and we are adding eventually back testosterone or estradiol, which provide that bone building sort of support, probably this dire prediction of blockers and bone mineral density probably is going to be a minor blip in someone's bone health compared to the you know, age 15 to 55 lifestyle, exercise, whole host of other effects that are really going to impact the outcome of interest, which is a fracture. Um, and you guys might be interested in the, PD, there's a pediatric study, maybe 2016, which modeled um, someone who would be on puberty blockers forever. And how did that impact the outcome of interest, which is fractures at an older age? And they did a really lovely modeling study, which said, yeah, the relative risk of fracture increases, but the absolute risk, even for someone on puberty blockers, like forever without gender hormones, isn't horrific, which I thought, again, was a brilliant and really interesting idea. So that might be, and again, you guys have those brains that play with those numbers and those calculations, which as a mere pediatrician makes my head hurt. One of the main and understandable concerns folks have about puberty blockers that Dr. Forcier alluded to what other impacts do they have on the brain? What are the possible neurocognitive concerns? And how do we discuss this with patients and parents? You know, we look at the people ask about neurocognitive changes, say with blockers. I say, I don't know, because I think it's so much better and so much smarter just to say, like, when you don't know things. You know, as a pediatrician, we get really neuro, like, we take care of people's most precious, precious beings. And so we don't want to screw up. Um, we really don't. We are the least like screw upable. Like, please don't let us screw up. You know, you go to bed and pray at night. I hope my kids are safe. That's pediatrics for the most part. Um, and so I tell parents, I don't know, but I do know this. I do know that so far the studies say that if there's changes, it's very soft, very minute, sometimes probably only, again, statistically significant in some of the measures that are being made as opposed to actual sort of affecting outcome of cognition, intelligence, social sort of um, 
you know, other social functions. And I do know that when kids are not depressed, when they're not freaked out about puberty, when they're not horrifically dysphoric, that that does impact brain function. And those are the things that I see very on a gross macro level where we see benefit and we're seeing a gross more macro level benefit versus some of the studies that say there might be some micro changes that we can measure via testing. But but are probably right now far, far, far uh, more minor than the macro level changes of less depression, less anxiety, less suicidal, um, less dysphoric. And so, you know, and again, I say, but that's why they come to talk to us is we keep on top of that. And if that changes, we tell you, because again, I don't have a vested interest as a provider. I have a vested interest in where their kid goes with their gender journey. I have a vested interest in their, the kid being represented because that's my job as a pediatrician. I have a vested interest in parents understanding the reality and the evidence because that's again, my job as a pediatrician. And I have a vested interest, again, representing that child's best goal, like how they can best meet their goals. So when we talk about um, this with with, um, kids and families, I talk about offering a menu of options of care. Because everybody's gender is going to be different. Everybody's gender journey is going to be different. Every kid's different. Every family's different. So we put out this menu of options that we go through and say, what seems to be the best fit for you? I've stopped comparing it to the sushi menu where you sort of check off, you know, spider roll and, you know, spicy tuna. Cause some families are like, Oh, sushi's bad. Yuck. Yuck. <laughs> so it's just, it's just a menu menu of average American food <laughs> that you could pick from. And that is according to your needs and, and preferences. Um, and again, puberty blockers, there's some of the things that I'll counsel parents about or kids about, you know, when you start a medicine, sometimes you can feel a little bit different. You know, well, I guess the other significant bad, like, you know, thing is shots hurt. If you're a kid, shots hurt. Like come in to see me. I know it's a drag, sorry. <laughs> but, you know, we can't help you with your puberty. So going to the doctor sucks, getting your shots, that hurts. Those are bad things. But those are things that we can deal with, you know, in terms of like side effects or adverse outcomes. That's not bad for a medication that has some pretty significant import. Um Sometimes people get a little perimenopausal. Like, so say you start someone who's like 10 or five and has been like in adult hormones for a couple of years. Like, you know, I can see a kid who's had periods since the age of nine, right? So they're 10 or five. By the time I see them for puberty blockers at 13, there's breasts, there's a feminine habitus, but still puberty blockers stop periods and stop continued feminization. I can see a young person who's say 10 or five in terms of their genitalia, and that testosterone effects in terms of masculinizing take a little bit longer. So I might see someone who looks very pubertal in terms of their, their phenotype, but they're 10 or five in terms of hormones. Their body just hasn't been exposed to that much testosterone for that long. Those kids who have higher, more adult, closer to adult level hormones, they may feel a little like fuzzy headed. You know, think about what menopause feels like. You might get some hot flashes. You might feel some concentration differences. There might be a little sleep disruption. You might be a little bit cranky or irritable as hormones are shifting. Like, you know, I'll tell parents, they may feel all of those. They may feel none of those because the relief is just so overwhelming. And the most palpable thing this kid is experiencing, but we prepare them for it. And I also tell kids, if for some reason, because we know that suicide and mood and safety issues are a concern in this population, I say, if you start blockers and for some reason, your mood changes, 
your feelings of safety change, your feelings of self-harm or suicidality change, I need you to tell me. I'm not going to point my fingers and say, oh my God, the blockers did this to you. I'm going to ask you, how can we figure out what's going on with your safety? Is it related to the blockers? Is it not related to the blockers? Because it may not be related to the blockers. We know that there's a lot of suicidality even without blockers. If it's related to the blockers, but you say, I need the blockers, how can we work to keep you safe with continuing to take the medication that you have? Again, I just haven't had those sort of mental health or suicidality or safety issues with kids on blockers because we talk about it so upfront and kids know if for some reason there are mood things going on with them on blockers, we're going to work with them to get them the medicine they need and help them stay safe. There's no threat of my medicines will be withdrawn. There's, if you need your medicines, you will get your medicines, period. And I think assuring kids of that is so important because they're coming to clinic, not knowing, are my parents going to say, okay, maybe they will, maybe they won't. I know they won't. Will the doctor be okay with this? Like, will I be trans enough for the doctor to give me medicine? That's been a fear for a lot of patients for years. Having to be trans enough that you, you know, you meet criteria, quote unquote, and you actually are eligible, quote unquote, for the medicines. So one thing you did talk about uh, a bit earlier is when, you know, parents throw up their hands and be like, oh, the kid's going to turn 18 and then they'll make the decision. And then we'll, we'll probably get into a little later. A lot of the laws also say that too, that are <laughs> of some states to say to wait till 18. Is there anything we can do for those children as providers uh, as these laws come out and our guidelines going to start reflecting this? in the future or anything like that? No, I don't think guidelines will reflect that. I think I went to WPATH. I have some notes on that too. I can send you that. Just interesting asking questions and, and stuff about hormones and their recommendations and why. Rejecting your child's gender identity, rejecting your child at home for being trans or gay, making your child feel bad about being trans or gay, refusing to care, you know, provide necessary medical necessary care for your child, there is zero studies that say that leads to a better outcome. Now, when you, when you think about that, that's kind of like, duh. <laughs> like if a kid doesn't feel safe and loved at home for who they are, of course, they're not going to do as well as a kid who like feels nurtured and feels respected and feels loved and has medicines that they need. Like, But it's really important to note that because of those people who will say, well, there's no randomized clinical trial looking at blockers or not blockers. Well, right, because it's unethical. We have enough data to say to divide people randomly into those groups and not provide them with effective, safe, medically necessary care is harmful. And again, you know, we just, so we're not going to get that randomized clinically controlled study, um, which is fine because again, the evidence is so persistent, consistent, insistent of like, affirm, support. It doesn't mean re like throw medicines at people. That's not what affirmation means. It means taking the time to get to know your patient, listening to them. That's healthcare 101. That's the care we all provide. You provide as pharmacists, we provide as, as physicians. That's, that's like patient care. You listen to your patient. And then from there, you come together to figure out what is the plan. Now for the kids that don't get care, say until 18, I mean, number one, you know, those that decision about not getting care until 18 is not being made by medical people. That's being made by politicians, which again, that's a whole nother 
you know, set up 10 podcasts talking about why are politicians making medical decisions? So another, another podcast, another day, but you know, for the family that says refuses care until 18, then we do some creative thinking. So one thinking might be like, say it's for someone who has significant menses dysphoria. I might talk with a parent, like, I know you don't believe in gender care, but your 13 year old has horrible periods, you know, is, is so messed up by their periods. If they were cis and they felt this horrible with their periods, of course we would treat them. So let's at least treat your kids' periods. Like you wouldn't deny your kid period treatment, would you? You wouldn't say like, oh, you must suffer your periods, you know, for the next five years till you're 18. And so then sometimes parents will be able, well, okay, because it's not gender care. Um, and it's something they would do for a cis kid. So sometimes you have to be creative. And then sometimes they see how much better their kid's doing on depo. And then sometimes we're like, well, you know what? Be even more effective to use blockers that period and they're like oh yeah they're well they're doing a lot better blockers are completely reversible maybe that is a good idea so sometimes it's it's about sort of slowly moving parents to give up that hard fast 18 and then it's their decision and it's continuing to say like when your kid turns 18 you're not going to stop loving them you're going to stop caring for them and you're not going to stop wanting them to be okay they have a different role in their decision making process but they're hopefully still want you to be helpful to them and support them. And you will hopefully still be a part of important decisions in their lives at 18. But that starts now with you listening to them at 13. And again, respecting some different things that they may feel differently or have a different lens on their situation than the lens, this is hetero lens that maybe you might be looking out of as to like what their experience is. And we need to look at the lens from the view of the kid, not the lens that, that you and I might have. Um, and we have to remember to switch those glasses. And sometimes I think that helps parents too. I think the other thing we sometimes do, you know, is um, like I've had kids that I've consented at age 17 and as soon as 18 and zero, they're in clinic that day. You know what I mean? Like if it's that sort of a hard stop, it's like, we're going to make this day so special for you. Because you've been waiting for this so long. And, you know, and I'll say it in a non-confrontational way. We're going to be here. You know, we're going to be here when you're 18. Like you need to, you need to stick around though. Because if you are not here at 18, you don't get those gender hormones. And that means you, you have to stick around and be safe and not give up. And that's hard. And I think it's, but it's important to remind parents, the whole suicidality thing, it's not a threat. It's not a card we play. It's a reality. And again, I would rather have a happy and alive trans kid, even if I don't necessarily believe in trans, than a dead kid, period. Even as a parent who doesn't believe in trans, I don't want my child to be dead. I don't want my child to suffer. So I need to learn more and think about things maybe a little bit differently so I can provide the kind of parenting my kid needs, which may be different than what I expected. And those are long conversations. Those are getting to know families. And that's hopefully having a family develop trust in you. Is I'm not here to harm your kid. I'm not here to harm you. I'm not here to mess up your family. But I am here to keep that central focus of your kid says this and they need this and we have this. 
And we need to keep bringing ourselves back to these healthcare needs and these medically safe, medically necessary, medically indicated treatments. Caring for gender diverse patients isn't just limited to providing care in the clinic, but in really every opportunity for interaction that a pharmacist would have in any setting, whether it's community, internal medicine, or ambulatory care. So in your experience, since we are pharmacists and pharmacy students, uh, you've mentioned interacting with like social workers and other healthcare providers. How is your practice and how do you see your practice in the future interacting with, with pharmacists? Because we are sort of entering this sphere um, and we're learning more about gender affirming therapy and pharmacists in a lot of states do have the ability to prescribe either alone with like a clinical practitioner degree or with the um, oversight of a physician. How do you see pharmacists uh, interacting with gender affirming therapy now and in the future? Sure. Well, I've had, I mean, personally, I've had a wonderful experience with pharmacists. We have a car compounding pharmacy here in Rhode Island. And when we were getting started, like they, they actually came to clinic. Uh, they introduced themselves again. We wanted a relationship so that when I referred patients to them, um, because they provided a reliable source, they provided the 10 CC vial, <laughs> They provided a, a kit that was well put together. Um, so we established relationships, got to know each other. And they were my go-to person when I was like trying to calculate out some different pharmacokinetics and like, you know, trying to figure out dosing and levels and some other things. And their their brain was much more bigger and better than mine and some of those metrics that pharmacists are, are skilled at. So I think pharmacists are a great allies and fantastic to ask questions. Sometimes if I had a question um, about an interaction or potential, you know, potential sort of, again, testosterone or estradiol or whatever effect on X, Y, and Z, I, I, I had pharmacists that I could reach out to who would thoughtfully answer the question. And I had great confidence in um, with the response and the answers they give me. Um, there's been other instances where like, and again, this, I've had to argue with pharmacists like, no, I know that insurance would like them to only have one needle, but I don't want them drawing up with the 18 gauge and putting that under their skin, you know, and then, you know, having to sort of argue. And I think, I think some of that probably are personal biases that come out, which happen in all of us. And that's why we fact, you know, we fact check and we check our biases on a regular basis as healthcare providers. Um, and I've had pharmacists that have gone beyond the call of duty and trying to locate that single vial of testosterone and anthonate that no one else can find, but that this patient desperately needs. And they get it from across the state. They get it shipped to their pharmacy and they get it in the patient's hands within a couple of days. You know, I, I think ideally, like, I mean, in a perfect world, you know, we'd have these sort of conversations together on a more regular basis so we could talk and understand. It's harder with bigger systems and bigger, you know, bigger pharmacy systems that makes that conversation a little bit harder. But as a provider, I'm always grateful when a pharmacy calls and says, are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. And the reason why I'm doing that dose is because they're, you know, it sounds fantastically high a dose, but yeah, their levels were like so incredibly low that we're just, that's their metabolism. And that's where we're at. I think those sort of open communications, discussing patient care, cross-checking each other, uh, both first, you know, um, like, are we doing the medically correct thing as well as cross-checking each other for, are, are we checking our biases at the door and are we, you know, doing the very best care we can for the patient, leaving, you know, all the 
sort of personal stuff that we bring as, as providers sort of by the wayside in order to make sure the patient gets exactly what they need. And again, if you're, if your pharmacist's working in other settings, you know, I'm thinking about some of the pharmacists I've talked to at the psych hospital, again, huge advocates in like getting people what they need and making things happen. The clinician may not be on board, but that pharmacist sees that that depot or that Lupron is due and they're like, Hey, this gets due. Let's let like team. Hey, you know, there's so many different ways to advocate. And then I think, you know, what Jordan was bringing up is advocating in real life, you know, intervening in situations where you see discrimination, making sure you use the right name and pronoun and correcting others if they're not talking in positive ways that are informative about um, the trans and gender diverse experience and how important and valid that experiences and how we as providers need to be more knowledgeable and also more um, uh, ready to provide services that, that really address in particular those specific needs. Those are all ways that we can work together to improve that patient experience. But I can tell you now, I just feel so cool. Like I spent the morning talking with pharmacists. Like, oh, I'm so bad. Like, <laughs> I'm like so bad. I'm like a pediatrician talking with the smart folks. This is well, so cool. For many of our patients, you know, one of the things that comes to mind, um, you know, it, it goes from like the very sort of casual outpatient setting where, you know, a patient gets misgendered, you know, as they go to pick up their medicine and, you know, systems in place to use the right name, the right pronoun um, for pharmacists to help patients get the right medicine. You know, we've had pharmacists that clearly have a different perspective um, in terms of either withholding or, or we, we see in an, or it'd be an interesting study in my mind. Um, we see an inordinate number of people get the wrong supplies, like the wrong stuff when they go say, just say to CVS, um, to pick up their, their materials for say injections, you know, needles that are this long and, you know, just a whole bunch of things that are like, you know, the, the rate of error for this population is just astonishing compared to other medicines that I prescribe where we just don't have that same problem. And I'm thinking about some inpatient situations where can we get the medicine? Well, we give the medicine, so it's at the hospital, but can you get it, you know, to that patient on, you know, the inpatient unit and all the forces in play? And again, places where pharmacists can be really real advocates. Um, and really say, of course, we can get this medicine or of course, you know, we know how to do this or, you know, your blockers are due like every other medicine that we're sort of helping to manage and follow. You know, you should get them this week. There's so many different ways. Um, I'm thinking about patients that we've had medicines compounded. Um, I'm thinking about pharmacy, a compounding pharmacy that created like a whole package of materials so that when our, when our people got their medications, it was standard. So there was, there were no errors because this was like, you know, the testosterone package. So I think there's so many opportunities for you. And also even on inpatient units, like why is this person with an F on their gender marker getting, tea you know what I mean like all these opportunities for pharmacists to say oh well of course like this is how this works and advising other folks that may not be as experienced as you guys in getting people the things that they need so I was very excited when you said you were you were doing this work because I think you guys are a critical link and people actually getting care so I was like oh I got to talk to important people who are critical links this is good <laughs> 
I think that speaks to Addie and I. We both have been working in in community pharmacies up until up until now. I stopped a couple months ago, but Addie, I think you still work. We've had we've had a lot of opportunities, both of us, to uh, advise oh, yeah. and counsel from the pharmacist student perspective on ensuring that people do get the right needles and supplies and stuff. And that was one of the early things that I learned about gender affirming therapy was like the the specifics of the needles and like the ease of use and, and switching needle tips. And certain people will like develop different preferences like, oh, yeah, I'd rather have the 25 gauge. And I'm like, OK, definitely. Let me get you the like 18 to draw it up and then you can swap out for the, the 25 gauge to inject because it's just it's such it's tea so thick that this right. just makes it a lot easier. Right. And Addie, you've got experiences with that as well, for sure, I know. Yeah, I mean, I actually recently had a uh, patient that started her gender-affirming therapy with us. Um, so I had to get her all the right supplies and things like that. Um, she already had a good idea of what she needed. It was yeah. just actually getting it for her. Um, and then finding, you know, instead of 25 gauge, I have a 27 or a 22, is that close enough? And then you're like, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, getting, and I got to employ a lot of things that we've learned throughout doing this podcast, like asking the patients, like, what are they excited for? Um, what are they not excited for <laughs> this process? Yeah. Because they're, they're always pros and cons. So, and it's very nice and it's very sweet to hear what they have to say. Um, so it's, it's a process and it's fun. Um, but yeah, we are in a very critical role when it comes to dispensing these meds. We've talked about pronoun usage on this series before, and it still stands that pronoun usage forms a really basic cornerstone in gender-affirming care. Asking about pronouns and sharing your own pronouns in patient interactions and just in general should be the norm. We'll be in clinic and we'll like have parents that are misgendering their kid. And you'll, you know, the kid's sitting, say, on the, on the table. Sometimes I like to sit on the table because again, it sort of changes the power dynamics in the room. But the parent, you know, uses the wrong name or pronoun. And I'll say, Sammy, he, 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 he. And I try to say it not and like uh, shake my finger away, but say it in a, I'm going to remind you and I'm going to model and I'll say this. I'm reminding you that it's really important for you to use the right pronoun. And I know it's going to take a while. I get it. You gave them that name at birth. You've been calling them, you know, she forever or he forever. It's going to take a while, but this is how you break that habit. And then I say, would it be okay for Sammy to remind you? Because kids aren't used to correcting or like saying, parent, you're wrong. It's not how we raise our kids. As I have a teenager now, I'm like, well, we, yeah. anyways, another story. <laughs> Do we raise our kids to talk to us very honestly? Ah, um, but we typically kids are are a little bit hesitant to correct their parents, and so, you know, modeling that if Sammy wants to say he, and say it with love and say it with kindness, and kids are so patient, they know their parents are going to make mistakes. They they really are. I've seen like parent, kids be so generous. Like, I know this is hard for you, but if you try, it really helps. And they're not asking for the world. They're just asking for their parents to open their eyes, open their hearts and try, try a little bit and see how happy you make me and see how I can grow and thrive when I'm feeling supported by you and feel how strong I become when I know that you understand that I'm still your child and still important and still amazing and that you love me. And that's what, you know, families are, are ideally about. 
And we try to have those moments where we talk about those things very explicitly. And, you know, talking to parents, I know you love your kid. I know you want what's best for them. Let let me help you understand some things that are sometimes really hard to understand that don't necessarily make intuitive sense that maybe not in your experience. But in your role, your job as a parent is to love your kid. Let me see if I can be helpful and you understanding those things so your kid can look back 10 years from now and say, God, my mom and dad or my dad and dad or my mom and mom, whatever, my grandparents, they were so amazing and they didn't understand an inch of this. And now they're my biggest supporter. And that, that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's a huge win for everybody in that family to look back and to be in that moment and to have that recognition of like, I as a parent can make all the difference for this kid. And I really don't have the option to ignore it or to stay in my comfort zone for medical reasons, evidence-based reasons for an outcome that's safe, healthy, and alive. I have that power to really, really make that difference for my child. I don't know, as a parent, I think I would, I would want to do everything in my power to help my child be healthy, not depressed and alive. And I think that's a really worthy goal to, to work for in clinic with parents and kids. And again, our kids are so strong and so brave. And I think, you know, it, again, just such a privilege to be a part of those conversations and such a privilege to support kids and parents and families and schools. And again, all the folks that are interested in saying, how can we help? improve the lives of our transgender, gender diverse youth. Like what are the things we can do, whether you're a teacher or a pharmacist, the bus driver who uses the right name. Those are all the grandmother who like nags the mom or the dad to get on board. <laughs> Use the right pronoun for God's sake. Those are all just really moments where we help kids. I mean, who... Who, who doesn't want to help children grow up healthy? Those are just mean people. Mm-hmm. Let's take a village. Yeah, yeah, that's us. The, there were a couple of points made about uh, fertility preservation, and, and you yeah. just brought one up. Oh, yeah. They want to donate sperm. Uh, they might want to go that far in puberty. And I think what you've been saying this whole time has been so beautiful about it's not about uh, we're pausing your puberty, I don't, I don't, you know, the, the boogeyman of the whole thing, but you, it's about working with that patient to get them to an understanding of what they think they want to do based on the available therapies. And that's right. always going to be the case. I think that that just goes without saying, but, but also I think it seems like there's some, a lot of work being done uh, in the fertility preservation yeah. route. And I think that's really important and really cool. Yeah. And I'd love to hear a couple words about that, but also yeah. I think I, I tried to harp on this a couple of times already today, but a lot of patients uh, at least based on the data presented, um, don't, that's not necessarily the top of their list. Uh, you know, like, Oh, fertility preservation, fertility preservation. I want to feel good. I, I like, I, right. Like I, I, I want to, I, I, there are so many things about my identity and feeling and feeling good, feeling like the person I'm supposed to be that, that are at the ABC of that list. And then yes, fertility preservation can matter, but that's, that's up to that individual patient. That is like so many things, not a reason to be like, Oh, we can't do this. Yeah. No. And a lot of, I mean, the way I can succinctly put it for parents is for a lot of kids, identity precedes fertility. I can't be a parent until I'm me. And if you're, you know, again, I need to be me first and then I can think about all these other things in my life. 
that said, a couple things come up. Number one, we always talk about fertility before we start blockers because we know that many of the kids, and again, we're just super honest. Many of the kids who start blockers are not going to want to go through puberty. So we don't want parents feeling like there's this disingenuous, like I know that there's a good chance your kid will go from blockers and say they're Tanner like two early 10 or two. And if they go continue on to puberty, uh, to gender affirming hormones, their gametes, their sperm or their, um, uh, over, uh, their ovum, their eggs are not going to be exposed to hormones that are needed for them to become viable, um, gametes, viable things that create a pregnancy. And kids are not going to want to say like turn 15 and say, okay, great. I want to masculinize now and undo all this really hard work. I have creating my feminine identity as you know, 13, 14 year old. So we talk about that. We talk about that, you know, at right now, according to the science, those kids who are like 10 or two, early 10 or two, and don't have gametes exposed to estrogen and testosterone are probably going to, probably going to be infertile. And I couch this as we don't know, because fertility is such a huge and rapidly changing area where we could have embryos created from fibroblasts. Like again, I don't know what's going to happen in 10 or 20 years. I don't, I can't predict if your kid in 10 or 20 years is going to want a child. And again, that's whether they're cis or trans. I can't predict whether a cis or trans kid is going to be fertile and have children in the future. None of that I can predict, but I can predict right now that your kid is in need of puberty blockers, understanding that if we start now and they continue on gender affirming hormones, they probably won't be able to have biologic children in the way that we currently know. Now, for kids that come in, say at 10 or three, four or five, we'll talk about before starting puberty blockers, like now would be a really good time to save those sperm or eggs if you wanted to do that. Saving sperm's much quicker and easier. Now, it's not necessarily a walk in the park. If you're super gender dysphoric, you hate your penis and the thought of like having to uh, masturbate, ejaculate is just distasteful to you because again, it's not part of your feminine identity. For some kids, that's a problem. For other kids, they'll do it or adults will do it because they want to. Sometimes kids do it because their parents want them to. And it's a way to keep going with gender affirming therapy. And again, we recognize with parents, you're looking at your kid across from me in the room saying, you're the most best thing I ever did in life. Like, how can you not want to have a kid? Well, you're looking at it with your cis, hetero, I'm a parent lens. You're not looking at it with your kid who showers in the dark doesn't take their binder off or their bra off when they shower and who again feels like their body has betrayed them and that things right now are just so unfair so you know we discussed that sort of parental reaction of like you don't want kids like you're the best thing that I've ever done and and they might and I say your your child might be a parent someday but it may be a parent in a different way and it doesn't preclude being a parent, it might preclude genetic fertility, genetic sort of ownership of that embryo. Ovum preservation, much harder. You know, that's a big process with hormones, injections, ultrasounds, invasive. If you've already got dysphoria, vaginal ultrasound is not something that is super exciting to think about for anybody. But I've had patients that have opted to elect for fertility preservation on both on both ends. And I think for me, the important part is to explain it in the language that is developmentally appropriate for that child at that time and to continue to explain it along the way. So before puberty blockers start, before gender hormones start, again, continuing to have those conversations about what people want to do. I've had adults that have come off their hormones 
to have a pregnancy. And I've had folks that have gotten pregnant accidentally on their hormones. Um, so, you know, we tell the thing we tell parents with say testosterone and estradiol are three things that sound like they're all antithetical, but they're all true. Number one, if you're taking say estrogen and testosterone over time, it could lead to less fertility or infertility. We don't know, but it could contribute to you having a harder time having a genetic um, child down the road. Two, you can get pregnant if you're having spermic sex. Even if you're on testosterone, even if you're taking estrogen, there can be a pregnancy. So if you're having spermic sex and you don't want a pregnancy, we don't advise pregnancy on testosterone because of fetal teratogenic effects, then you should have some sort of form of family planning contraception. And then three, we know people get pregnant after being on gender hormones. Again, sometimes planfully, sometimes unplannedly, but people can get pregnant after, say, being on testosterone. Um, again, if you're advising about fertility, usually people will know if they're going to get pregnant, say, after being on testosterone for a period of time. Usually we'll know if ovarian function returns about eight months. So I say, you know, about a year. If you want to try for pregnancy, you don't have to try for 10 years. You know, about a year, you're going to sort of probably have an idea, at least according to what we know now if things are going to happen or if things might not happen according to, again, the testosterone effects. So try to sort of couch those conversations again in language that makes sense for kids and families. And again, according to what we know, which will change. And again, according to what we know, even about like people being fertile and people deciding that they want kids, we don't, we don't know. Parents will say, well, I didn't know I wanted kids when I was 13. Yeah, but you were just hetero and you weren't thinking about this. Your kid's been thinking about this stuff for like years now. Like their understanding of gender and all this stuff is way more sophisticated than yours. No offense. And, and, you know, and it's a different perspective. So honor that different perspective, honor that different understanding, honor that different priority system. Um, And that's sort of our job and your job in terms of providing care for kids one way or another. Ultimately, it comes down to just providing holistic and equitable care that's supported by a continuously growing body of data to patients that need it. It's not complicated. Patients are getting left behind and are facing adverse outcomes because of restrictions on healthcare. I had a conversation with my parents the other day. They're both engineers about gender affirming therapy and and, uh, transgender patients. They're both engineers. So they're very like, if there's this going on, there's obviously a solution to it. And like, they're very one-to-one. And they were telling me, they were like, I wish, I'm hoping there's like a genetic test down the line when a kid is born that they're going to be able to say that they're transgender. And it's hard for me to explain to them (laughs) that it's a separate thing. Right. Like our identity and what our body is is, are two separate things. I'm just kind of looking for a guidance on that conversation. One and two, um, is there something like that being researched even? Um, Oh, yeah, there's there's tons of people that would love to find like, again, in medicine, we love causes. There's the etiology. Fix it. And and there's always that question of what caused this? You know, is it genetics? There's like studies about, middle, you know, different finger lengths that are important for gender development. There's all kinds of cool things out there. Different parts of the brain that are bigger or less big and different hormone effects and polycystic ovarian hyperandrogenism effects, you know, in, in persons. So what I tell parents or folks is, you know, diversity is just a part of biology. Like the whole like no single snowflake, that's the same. 
Well, I mean, if we're talking about snowflakes, think about you know the differences in gender identity across every single human being in the world. So, so identity is different than biology, and even biology is super diverse. And then the question is, you know, even if there was a cause, a single cause or a main cause, the real question is, how do I help my kid? Like, it's nice. I mean, if there was a single gene that we could predict and prepare parents, sure. But there would be a whole bunch of kids that that single gene probably wouldn't predict that identity formation piece, just because again, of the complexity of identity formation. So the the better question is more, not necessarily what happened or how did this happen or what caused it? You know, mothers are always like, what did I do? I'm sure I did something that made this happen. So now, you know, identities develop over time. Everybody's different. There's all kinds of different potential factors that go into gender identity formation. But the question you need to be answering is how can I help my kid? Because that's the one that actually matters. The what happened, why, eh, interesting, critical to your kid being okay? No, not at all. And in fact, sometimes asking that question pathologizes a person because what you're saying is what went wrong? And what I'm saying is everybody develops differently. And so there is no wrong development. There's your individual path and perspective, which is right because it's yours. And so I think it's flipping that model. And I think explicitly flipping it is, I mean, great, because then you can sort of address that, again, tendency for us to want explanations, which lead to pathologization, which has happened to the trans community forever, versus human development is varied and diverse, and it's always going to be individual. And so there is no what went wrong. There is how can I help you be a happy person, a happy child, a happy neighbor, a happy spouse, whatever that is. Does that sort of help with your parents' sort of question? Yeah, yeah, it does. Thank you. Yeah, so tell them if they want that engineering pathway, and it's not looking back, it's looking forward. And that engineering pathway of how can you know how can we work with this or fix this or or um, make this this work is forward and support. Thank you for listening. This will likely be the last episode in this series for a while, as most of our team is composed of final year pharmacy students and will be a little occupied in the next few months with residency interviews and exam preparations. If you've been with us since the beginning, we hope you've learned something. If one pharmacist or healthcare provider incorporates what we've talked about in their practice, then this will be a success. Special thanks to Dr. Michelle Forcier for sharing her experiences with us. Thanks also to Jordan Smith and Addie Dante for joining the conversation. Music by Dave Jules. Again, thank you for listening. See you next time.